Hey everyone, uh, welcome to the podcast, The Recruiting Today, uh, where we interview the global leaders and take their perspective on how the recruitment space is shaping up. And we deep dive into different aspects, hiring, skilling, and culture. I'm your host, Marth, co-founder and CEO of Hire Ocean, a company that, that is working with the likes of Boston Consulting Group and really helping them hire the top talent at scale. Today, uh, we have the honor to sit with Jim, uh, who's ex-vice chairman and global CEO of Deloitte Consulting. After uh, Deloitte Consulting, he's been board advisor to a lot of companies and is also an angel investor. Thank you, Jim, so much for taking out the time and talking to us. Thank you, Smarth. Uh, looking forward to the discussion today. Uh, so, Jim, before we get into the specifics, um, I think what would be helpful for all of us is to understand a bit more about your experience in the consulting world, your move to the capital market, and also a little bit of story. Uh, what led you to where you are today? It's a bit of a circuitous journey. It's not, I wasn't one of those people that when they were in college said, I'm going to be X, you know, by Y. And so it's been a bit of an exploration. I grew up in a family of physicians. I was a, a bio and management science major. Um, couldn't decide between business or getting a medical degree. And I think that it was probably a precursor to consulting, meaning I could never really figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I ended up uh, working a couple of years. I got accepted to business school right out of undergrad, but worked a couple of years just to make sure uh, that, that I really didn't want to go the medical route. And so I did that and then ended up going to business school. And in that, you know, when I went to business school, consulting was still pretty early in its maturation. And so um, I didn't know much about it. I ended up doing it as a summer intern uh, with Deloitte and then, you know, ended up going there full time. But I have to admit, I, I, when, I, when I joined, I said, you know, I'll do this for two years and then I'll, I'll go do something else. I, I really wanted to start my own company. And, you know, I, as I kind of joke now, I, you know, I only missed it by 30. I ended up staying 32 years. And what I realized was that in consulting, I could reinvent myself about every three to four years um, and not have to leave companies. And I, and I consciously kind of pushed myself to you know, always seek the next challenge, next opportunity while I was there. So I had, you know, a wide variety of experiences. It, but, but I will also tell you, I avoided every management role for about almost 20 years. I just didn't want to. Do, I love consulting. I love working with clients, you know, senior leadership teams on their strategies and transformation. And that's really what I, what I like to do. I finally got cornered um, by, the, by the, you know, the executive committee to take on some roles and then was asked to be CEO when the firm really needed to reset its strategy for the next next 10 years. I was blessed by growing up with some great operators. They would acknowledge that. Uh, they knew how to run a business. They knew how to make money, but they did, didn't feel comfortable that they'd put the, the, the company on a path for, for sustainable growth. And so that's why I was tapped. As part of that journey, um, I got really interested in innovation and the emerging technologies. Now that's back in about 2010, 2011. Um, and that was a big part of our, of our strategy was really starting to think differently about how we went to market with, uh, with you know, different, different partners. And, and more and more we saw that the innovation was, was happening earlier and earlier. Um, and that, that there were some really exciting things going on in that space. And really for, to serve our clients, we, 
we couldn't just deal with the big players. We had to be thinking ahead in terms of who are the emerging players that were going to be, you know, in, you know, instrumental to their stack going out a few years. That's a long way of saying that's how I kind of ended up where I did. You know, we have mandatory retirement in at Deloitte. Um, I, I had been running the the U.S. and then global practice for seven eight years. Had a strong team. We were three years into our global transformation at that point, um, and I just felt I was ready for the next chapter. And for me, my next chapter, I you know, I'm not a golfer. Um, I love my family. I want to spend a lot of time around that. I'm giving a lot back to um, the, the, the academic areas where I went, UCLA and UC San Diego. But I also knew I wanted to stay engaged. And, and so I've pivoted now to working with, um, you know, several VCs and a couple of private equity firms and, and companies that are like yours, right? They're early in their, in their, their gestation, tremendous innovation, but they're trying to do something big and, and bold and, and, and uh, you know, aspirational at, at the same point. They're, they're trying to deal with, you know, growth and scale and all those things that, that I've had the privilege of doing in our own business or with clients for many, many years. So that's kind of where I am today. My kids say I, I have failed retirement. I, I said I, I didn't retire. I just, I just created a second chapter and it's a different chapter because I don't have to worry about generating $3 billion of earnings at the end of the year, but I get to coach and advise and mentor a bunch of really smart, energetic, um, you know, talented people that are driving, I think the next stage of growth and innovation um, across the globe. Very, very interesting. And um, so what makes me really think, and, um, and that's my next question to you, you talk about building this, 10-year strategy for Deloitte Consulting. And then we are all aware that at your time as the global CEO of Deloitte Consulting, it was the fastest growing business unit within the firm. Help us understand a bit more of the mental model that you use to scale so fast. Yeah, well, you know, look, I'm, first of all, I'm a big believer in strategy and, and kind of having to set a direction uh, of where you're headed. And then a, a lot of scale is providing the right you know, focus and energy uh, aligned around similar things. And so we were, we were pretty prescriptive in terms of where we thought the opportunities were across, um, you know, industry verticals, clients, um, alliance partners, global. Um, and then, then got, we got really good at, in terms of, you know, allocating our investments and, and prioritizing our times in those areas. But a big part of it is, is around talent. The, the, you know, when I did this with clients, when I did it with our business, I, I came to understand that the biggest constraint to growth was leadership. Um, and and to, to have leadership, you need, you need strong pipelines. And in our business in particular, I, I, you know, I think in virtually every business, it comes down to the people. Uh, in our business, we were a talent business, and I never forgot that. So having robust pipelines of the best talent with tremendous capability that could fuel kind of the engine was a big part of it. But it started out with a very, very, you know, good idea of where, you know, like I, I sat down, we were about a $7 billion practice globally at the time. And I, and I you know, sat down and I said, you know, I, I think we need to be 20 billion by 2020. And, um, you know, I, I hit a lot of jaw drops that people thought I was crazy, but then I started to architect out 
the dimensions of us that got there. And we, and we, you know, basically prescriptively worked that. But a big element of that was, was around talent and, and having talent models and capability models and starting to unlock different, you know, pipelines of talent to be able to get there. And help us understand a bit more about the different pipelines and specifically in the context, I read an article in the Washington Post we talked about hiring long-term unemployed people and emphasized on using unbiased screening process for it. So if you could help us understand the importance of correctly screened uh, candidate before you hire and what is the future of uh, this entire mental model that you see? Yeah, it's um, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's talk first about the, the White House work, which was, you know, at, at, the, at the end of the, the financial downturn, um, you had this situation, I can't remember the exact date, but if people were out of the job market for 12 months, the likelihood, 12, 18 months, I can forget the exact date, but the likelihood of them ever being able to re-enter and re-emerge the market was virtually nil. Uh, some people kind of self-selected out, but a lot just lost the confidence, capability, uh, et cetera. And so we did some interesting pro bono work with um, some other companies and, and with some think tanks. And what, what became apparent through several studies that, it, you know, if you sent the same, the, the resume for the same person and essentially anonymized them, but the only thing you changed substantially on it was how long that person had been unemployed. Those people just never got into this. They never got through the screening process. And it was like, you know, the light bulb went on for me and just in terms of unintentional and when you're talking to senior leadership, they had no idea that that screen was there, but the reality is those people never got there. Now, as I translated that to our business, and as we grew, and particularly as we got into different types of businesses, you know, one of the one of our one of the beauties of our model was that we could go from strategy all the way to implementation. I mean, we had we had some of the world's best. We had the third largest strategy practice globally. We had the second largest human capital practice, and we probably had the third or fourth biggest technology practice. And, and we competed, competed at the top for all of those spaces. Um, each of those models and the different offerings underneath them require different types of talent, which has to be sourced from different pipelines. And what we found, Smarth, was... Um, particularly as we started to pivot all the way from, from campus and doing a lot more experienced hire, that the experienced hire pipelines weren't geared necessarily to get to the diversity of talent that we needed. And so we had to really start to rethink, you know, we could get enough candidates from the traditional past, but they weren't getting us to the diversity of talent that we wanted. So we had to start thinking differently about where we would source and then, you know, really start, um, you know, thinking differently about how we brought people into the practice. Um, you know, in our world, we, going back to when I joined, we, we had kind of two dimensions. It, it, a big part of it was capability. Do you have the capabilities to actually thrive and succeed here? And a big part of it was fit, right? Do you have the right culture components that you need to be successful with us and with, with clients? And so what we found is we had to tailor those models, capability models, uh, a little bit, depending on what kind of offering. And I think one of our, one of Deloitte's 
you know, secret sauces was the ability to put together, like brilliance comes in all different shapes, sizes, forms, et cetera, right? The, and, and what it takes to deliver a hundred million dollar global technology implementation requires brilliance. It's different than perhaps the brilliance required to do a cutting edge corporate strategy for, for a company, but it's brilliance. And then the people that can do that are, are few and far between. I, I always thought one of the things that was our magic is we'd figured out how to knit together collaboratively these different types of, of talent and, and, and capabilities. And to me, that's where the magic comes. You know, the, the whole idea of complementarity and you know, different perspectives and thought, I, I think there's tremendous power in that. The very few um, firms who are actually doing it right and the way you describe it, uh, to me, what, what's really very important to understand a bit more, you talk about hiring at scale, perhaps a million applicants applying to Deloitte at the size it is every year across different practices or even more than that. But at the same time, making sure that the intake process is bias-free and is focusing on, on the skill set, on the capability, competence that you talked about. How do you yeah. manage to do that? Because in the end, there are few interviewers who can pretty much interview everybody. Well, and that was always that was always a constraint. That's what excites me about your company and some of the other ones I see today is, is that you're you're really very dependent on the on the interviewer. Um, and look, we all like to say that we all remember the stars that we we ended up identifying and, and bringing on board. We tend to forget the ones that, that didn't work out. So no matter how good you are, and there are people that were definitely better at it. Um, but but you're still dependent on that. And, and and so, you know, we got what we to try to so we train people. We, we were selective of who did it. We also were pretty prescriptive around, you know, what cases people used, the approaches they used, et cetera, so that we knew we had some standardization around it. But that still doesn't get. And I, and I, I don't think that has been again. That's why I get excited about what you're doing is ways to really get underneath and eliminate the biases. Now, I'm, I'm going to still, of all the case interviews I did, and, of, of, and I still think for particularly the strategy part, it's the best way to evaluate how somebody thinks and, and their ability to succeed from, a, from a, you know, kind of an intellectual capacity perspective in consulting. The best person that ever did it had no had no formal kind of good, no, certainly had not worked for a fortune, as a business school, had not worked for a fortune 100 or fortune 500 company. And, and she was a PhD in dance and she just crushed it. But if you looked at the resume, right? If you looked at the resume, she would have never made the screen. I was one of the ones she bid for. And, and so that always stood out to me and said, you know, you, you, you have to really kind of get behind the cover to try to understand that. And, and that's what I get excited about with some of the, the, the things that you're doing and others are doing around that to really kind of get behind what does it take, what are the capabilities that, that really unlock that, that will you know, predict success? And I, I think there's an element around this too, Smarth, which is just as important, which is how do you, you know, based on the capabilities, you know, once somebody's in, right, what do you need to continue to complement and develop them around so that they become that full, 
you know, full, you know, in our world, consultant have the capability to really thrive because everybody comes in with gaps, right? What you don't want to do is take, you know, have somebody like the long-term unemployed who just gets excluded because of some criteria as opposed to really kind of getting a, hey, they've got the raw material. Doesn't mean that they're fully formed, but but based upon that, how do we actually now help that person get get to the next next level and continue to thrive in their career? That makes sense. Yeah, I 100% agree to it. In fact, uh, when when we have these sessions with our clients, one of my biggest advice to them is, look, it's a competitive market. It's talent war out there. Go after the under-recruited pool. And if you have the right screening methods, if you're objective in your entire screening process, you would end up finding hidden gems that no competitor is able to find out. And that that's, uh, so you bring those talent, you nurture them, help them understand the strengths, gaps, keep it as transparent, as objective as possible, and then invest in fulfilling their uh, gaps, sorry, and then pretty much uh, help them grow within the organization. So in that way, you're really also investing in their personal and professional journey. Uh, yeah, no, look, and that, here's, here's, you know, what you find is you, you, know, you have to start to go to different pipelines and you have to go earlier. I go, you know, when we were really starting, and again, we're, we're all about talent. I mean, to me, it's, you want to find the best talent wherever they are. You can never find enough. And, and in our world, you, you know, you're always trying to increase the talent level. Right? So, so when you really start to open these up, again, I come back to the standard places you would go. They can get you enough candidates to fill the number, but they're not going to all the places to necessarily get you the best candidates. And so having some way, you know, to one, identify those pockets and, and underneath that, figure out where, you know, what, you know, how can I tell within this pool, these people are really going to thrive, you know, if kind of add, adding the right water and fertilizer from a development standpoint, they're really going to thrive. That's gold. That, that's absolute gold if you can do that. And, you know, I'll go, I spent a lot of time with the business school at UCLA and, and you know, all, all the, the academic institutions are now going to be faced, particularly with these standardized tests goes, go away. How do I start to find, you know, and they're all trying to, to do the same thing in terms of access and, and kind of broadening the, the input pool of pipeline, but how are they going to go about now really assessing those people that can be real, you know, really talented, raise the bar, but are probably from places that they wouldn't necessarily go, and particularly without the standardized test. And we all know about the bias. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the bias and standardized test uh, to start with. 100%. In fact, in one of your fireside chats uh, at a business school, you talked about how Deloitte is pushing for inclusion in the workplace by sponsoring underrepresented minorities and women for job roles. Help us understand uh, some of the insights that you got from that project and why inclusion is such an important aspect for the corporations and what are some of the challenges uh, that they might face when they're implementing this? Yeah, it's, you know, I, again, I go back to, it's, it's about having the, the, the team with the most talent generally wins, right? And, and again, if you have a strategy, you know, absolutely, but you, you, you gotta have talent and I, I have always believed seeing it that the complementarity across leadership teams 
results in the best outcome. You can see it, whether it be in major corporate. I, anytime I saw a company that was extremely insular, I got very worried. And so I know consciously in how, you know, I operated our business, but how, how we operated our business, um, that we always tried to, to, to broaden the perspectives, you know, across all dimensions, right? And, you know, diversity of thought, you know, backgrounds, it just makes the, the decisions better. Getting there is hard. We did some really interesting work around the sponsorship piece where what we found for, for candidates that we brought in, for some reason, women and underrepresented minorities didn't have as many natural mentors and even more importantly, sponsors as, as you know, the, 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 the other candidates. And so, which dramatically affected um, kind of promotability and development. And so we, we put in place, and this was some really interesting work that our human capital practice had done. And so, you know, we, we put that into practice, had one of my, one of my partners who was leading our diversity and inclusion, Terry Cooper, she had just retired, tremendous partner. And she really spearheaded it. And what I found is, yeah, you have to have that, but you also have to make it a priority at the top. And then you have to have somebody like Terry who really just kind of leans, she really leans in. And we did this, we did this across, we started first with our, with our partners and managing directors and then pivoted on down through the practice, but really went through and said, you know, who's got the right kind of sponsorship and mentorship and, and, and then kind of uh, in a really concerted way, built that in, but it really came from that insight that for some reason they don't, and and without it, your your path to promotion, to filling in those gaps, to getting those opportunities, are are just not there. That makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And in fact, we've seen another trend. Uh, it's also a lot of candidates would apply to the companies, being well aware of what what is the kind of process they have to go to. And if the brands are able to build a perspective that we're very biased free, uh, we focus only on the competence capabilities, then the entire setup becomes very welcoming. And uh, more so, I, I think for me, I, the only way the organizations can really solve this challenge to make the screening uh, much more objective and much more standardized so that it ends up making the workplace diverse is only and only with technology and data. Because if you're using technology and data at scale, you can standardize, you can make it objective, but more importantly, have an understanding that what are the skills, what are the questions that are introducing bias of any nature and are also not good predictors of the success of the candidate. And fundamentally, we have to take this skill, this question away. Yeah, you know, smart. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and I and I think this goes across virtually every business, every vertical, and every dimension. That that technology and data um, are are allowing us to do things that we just weren't able to do five and ten years ago. And look, we had a standardized process. We had talent, we had different talent models, depending on what part of the practice we were bringing into. Those talent models were consistent across the globe. There were capability, you know, really defined capabilities required to go from one level to the next, et cetera, et cetera. But the weak, you know, the chink in the armor 
even with standardized approaches to recruiting and, and defined places that you went and with standard cases and standard behavioral event interviews, you're still dependent on that individual, right? And so it, even the best, and we were real, we were as good as anybody at this. And we put, look, we put time and energy into this long before I was a partner. I mean, this was kind of built into the fabric of who Deloitte is. And a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of big firms are this way where they're, they're really trying to do this, but you need some different tools to really unlock what's here. And that's where I think the opportunity with data and AI is now you got to make sure that you're not introducing biases into, into the AI either. So you have to really be objective around that as well, but it does allow you to really get past that one, that one kind of chink in the armor, which is no matter how, how defined and how you're still down to that individual and that individual's interpretation. And, and that's even if you see the candidate, you see the candidate. I mean, the way, way we, you know, you source candidates it, before anybody ever talks to them, you have, you have those, you know, like we talked about with the white house where people are just getting excluded based on different criteria. So I think there's a real opportunity that just wasn't there years ago in, in an area where, you know, I think it's be, it's becoming even more and more important and, and become elevated across not just firms like ours, but I think all firms to start to deal with this issue. Yeah, and you've been on record to say the biggest challenge for innovators is bringing their ideas into practice at, at large scale. Now that you mentioned that this is a revolution in the human capital, human resource that we're headed, what are some of the hiring industry innovations that you believe are addressing the problems and scale and what could be the challenges to implement them? Well, you know, I, I think your, your, your company is a great example of, it, it, of, you know, one of, one of the companies I've seen. First of all, I'd say that there's just a ton of interest and innovation happening in the human capital space. I think it's driven by all the things we have been talking about. Uh, your company intrigues me just for the reasons that we've talked about, which is the ability to at scale, you know, identify different pockets of talent, removing the bias, but really understanding what are the capabilities that are predictive of success and, and really what are the, you know, the gaps that need to be filled beyond that. I've seen some other, some other really interesting companies that have been kind of complementary to what you do where they were built, one was built particularly looking for where there was inverted demand, where, where there's more demand than there is supply. And how do I go unlock pockets of talent based on capabilities that can, can essentially, that you can go to, um, to, to you know, find you know, candidates that may be different than what would be traditionally on the resume. Um, and they, they've kind of mirrored that into things that identify, you know, capabilities of success. And so, you know, I think that's really interesting. And they have a ton of kind of proprietary data around that. I've seen another one that was built around, you know, workforce of the future. The idea was initially, you know, that so much of work as we've defined it is changing. And so you take, and we did some of this work, you know, early, early on when, when I was still at Deloitte, where we started to look at companies and based upon the impact of technology, what percentage of their workforce was going to, you know, the, the, the requirements to do the work was going to change. And, and it was oftentimes in the 40, 50%, depending on what the job classification was. 
So the question is, how do you take an existing workforce and pivot them to be, you know, positioned to, to deliver on the, the new job requirements? And, and, and nobody wants to go rehire an entire workforce. There's obviously going to have to be some change, but how do you start to now look at that footprint and start to put in place development roadmaps for people that want to make that change and start to fill in, here's the things you need to do to fill the cap capability gaps to position for the new job, not just your current one. And then frankly, the part of that was for people that couldn't make that transition is how do you actually help prepare them appropriately to get a job and help them get a job if they decide to leave. So I, those are some of the innovation, but there's so many going on you know, right now. I think it, all driven by the conversation we've been having is people are trying to get access to more and better talent and trying to unlock kind of non-traditional pockets and identifying within those pockets who are the who are the people that will be you know future stars and future contributors to our organization yeah and i think uh, that is what drives us at higher quotient as well in fact personally for me uh, what is really satisfying is to see that a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have made the cut, uh, top consulting firms, top SaaS companies, are able to get into the organizations based on their competence, just because uh, the filters that the companies are using are the right ones. And the more, and I've been a trainer myself. I've trained many uh, working professionals and students to crack top consulting firms. So when you when when you see uh, right people getting the right opportunity that that is very very satisfying yeah look when you're when you're kind of at my age my stage in the career you know you realize that that's the most important thing i you know the thing i'm thing about thing i'm proudest about and and kind of what i did in my career is i is i look at you know some of the people that um you know was part of giving opportunities to and you know maybe people that were you know, not on the not on the fast track, and, and just seeing take that opportunity with the right support and just thrive. Those are the ones that make me smile the most. And and that's really what you're talking about at scale. And, and you can't do that without without some tools uh, around this. I think for the early stage companies, you know the opportunity you have to, you have kind of two dimensions. One, I I fundamentally believe the innovation. It's really hard. We spent a lot of time on this, but it's really hard for big established companies to drive innovation in the way an early stage company like yours can. It just they're not built to do that. For early stage companies, is how do you how do you scale your talent fast enough, and then also how do you pivot to work with these bigger enterprises who are thirsting for it? Because these big enterprises, you know, they're like they're also not natural at you know working with companies that are early stage and so you have to find you know find companies that and, and i and i do believe that most companies are trying to figure this out but you have to find the right intersection that says how do i go and now build that that interface to work with these big companies and, and so that I, I can i can continue to drive and scale and and you know learn a lot from them at the same point have them not crush you Right. So I've seen one of the clients I worked with, you know, many, many years ago before this really happened. And they, you know, they would, whenever they worked with an early stage company, they ended up buying it because they were so over demanding in what they expected 
that essentially they were driving the, the roadmap, which you know essentially made, meant that the company was their own kind of internal development group rather than really being a stand-up you know organization. Which is you know I think part of what SaaS has done is is I think unlock that a bit, but it's still a challenge that you'll have. I can fully relate with that problem because we work with a lot of enterprise clients as well. And um, I can really sense uh, what you're saying. But this has been a great session and uh, we've really taken a lot of learnings and insights from uh, how you've scaled your team rapidly, sustainably, and more important, I think, uh, created impact at scale. Uh, Any final piece of advice that you would have for hiring managers uh, who are listening to this podcast and looking to really revamp uh, their recruitment practices and make it people first. You know, smart. Maybe a couple points. One is um, never sacrifice. You know, never sacrifice um, values and culture for capability. It's about and not or. You want them both. You want people with the right capability, but also people with the right and aligned values and cultural elements. So, you know, don't sacrifice on either dimension. I don't think that ends well. The The other part I would just, I'll come back to is in every strategy I work with a client in our business, at the end of the day, it comes back to people. And so I, I will tell you my own experience around this is, you know, once we got the strategy set and I spent, you know, first, let's say first 18 months was around strategy, brand positioning. I, and I would do this really disciplined and kind of every year, kind of where am I going to go spend my time? Part was around, you know, market and growth. Part was around brand and positioning. Part was operations. Part was talent. What I started to see was as we progressed further and further, the, you know, more and more of my time and my leadership team's time was focused on talent because the talent world, model, talent world was changing so fast. And what we were doing was changing so fast that that's where you really have to spend your time. So n- never forget how important it is to bring the right talent is, but also invest in that talent so that you can achieve what you're, you're, you're trying to achieve and never sacrifice um, you know, values and, and, and culture for, for capabilities, demand to get both. My, my final thoughts. I share the same sentiment. In fact, uh, one very typical question that every early stage company gets asked by the investors, hey, what's your mode? And more and more people talk about different uh, patents, they talk about product. I think for me, fundamentally, and for us at High Quotient as well, team and talent are very strong modes. That, that's what we feel. Because if you have the right team, they have the right intent, uh, they fit well in the culture, they're rightly aligned towards the vision and they're obviously skilled, then you can really create magic. That is where you create an organization that uh, is able to create impact at scale. Yeah, I think you, I 100% agree. I mean, you, you have to build people that are not just interested in their side. One, they're, they understand where you're headed they understand how what they're doing fits into driving that, how the, the, the firm benefits as well as how they benefit. But at the same point that they understand how to look left and right and connect the dots, particularly early stage companies where 
it's all relatively fluid, right? In terms of how jobs and roles and all that plays out, it starts to get more hardened. But, but I, I know personally, I look for leaders who were not just worried about the people that reported to them, but they also realized that there was a bigger picture and their job, part of why they're in those roles is they need to connect the dots. They need, to, they need to provide the context that people on their teams may not have as to why they should work with X and Y to drive this kind of impact. And so if you don't start there, if you don't hire people with that mindset, it's really hard, it's really hard to get that back. I will also say, you know, and you've heard this at different versions of this, but but you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. If you don't have if you, and you can you can destroy a culture faster than you can build it. And and you know it is it is really hard to get back once you once you've done that. The person that hired me, I'll go end on this. The person that hired me, and, and we were very office based at that point. I still remember you know, he, he spent the majority of the time talking about values. And he, he, I think it was one of our early conversations. He goes, he, you know, these are so important when you go to bed at night, they, sh they should be kind of embedded on your eyelids. So when you close your eyes, you still see the values. That's how important it was to him. And, and you didn't get in without doing the case interview and all that other stuff on capability. But if you didn't get that, you didn't, you didn't thrive. And that's exactly what um, we, we look at a higher question as well. Culture for us is what are people doing when nobody's looking at them? Forget the team, forget monkey see, monkey do. It's exactly the DNA and how you yeah. stitch that together. Uh, 100% agree, 100% agree. And that's, it's hard to do, but I, the, look, the companies I work with, it, there's one common thread and uh, you know it, it it's around that. They all have, it starts with, one, are they doing something big and aspirational? And, and, but, but two, I spent a lot of time on the team and the, and the cultures and values. And if they're not aligned, I just, because I don't, I don't think it could be, one, I don't want to spend time there, but two, I just don't, I don't think you'll be ultimately successful uh, as you try to, I don't, I don't think you can scale that model. I, I, you know, one last thing I, I didn't say is as you get bigger, um, it's really hard to make sure you don't lose what made you great because when you start doing it at scale you know our, we were an apprenticeship model right so a lot of it was you know people came on and they'd learn from the people above them as you scale you have to you know really hard and concentrate on making sure you don't lose that as you get bigger right so you, we had an initiative called big firm small field right so while we were big we didn't want to lose that perspective of still being a kind of small you know, firm that nurtured and developed. And that's also, that's one of the big, as you, as you get really big, that's one of the things, probably the thing that kept me up at night the most was around that topic, how we don't lose who we are. And a lot of that's around culture and values. And that's the whole piece of advice uh, for all our listeners from Jim. Thank you so much, Jim, uh, for all the time and for sharing the deep insights. It's been very enriching session and I'm sure the listeners would enjoy it as well. Thank you, Martha. I enjoyed it um, as well. You know, great, great topics. Spent a lot of time on this. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's your host, Matt, signing off. Thank you.